This morning will be, it's funny, I always, I always have this sense that, wow, today's a really different kind of teaching, and I'll go home and say, that was really different, wasn't it, to Cheryl? And she'll say no, and I'll go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it is for me. I, I came into the office on Thursday morning to, to study a very specific planned out teaching. I, I map out the teachings, and I had a real strong sense of exactly where we were to go and what I wanted to talk about. Um, and then I sat down, and, and I began praying over the study, and God said, nope, not that, not that. And, and I'm up there in my office actually having a disagreement going, well, what do you mean, not that? This is good stuff. And um, my sense was, no, no, it was very specifically something else. And, and honestly, when, when the Lord was saying something else, uh, and, and what he told me what it was, and, and I know I'm talking very conversationally. Um, I, I wasn't, I, I want you to be clear, I wasn't hearing the Lord say, Rick, you know, but I, I had this very strong sense, and I was talking out loud because that's what I do, and, and I just said, Lord, this? And, and there was a specific theme, a specific topic, and I don't normally go topical. As you know, we like to just go verse by verse, but there's a very specific topic that uh, actually has been on my heart for a while, but, but it became clear, no, this morning. This is what we're talking about. And it didn't seem to fit. And then, so I just read again, Joshua chapter seven, and it became clear. With this, so we're going to talk about this particular thing this morning. And what will be different is at the end, I'm going to have you all pray with me about this particular topic. We're not going to do an altar call or an invitation today. Uh, you are always invited to come for prayer. You are always invited, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, to do that. Anytime. You don't have to wait until the pastor says, now is the time and the people are in place. And You come to Jesus when your heart is ready to come to Jesus. And I say that to you here present. I say that to you listening online. Now is the time. The invitation to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is always available. So just because we're not doing a formal altar call this morning doesn't mean that you can't come to the Lord. But Joshua chapter seven, beginning in verse two, we studied Joshua seven through on Wednesday night. Let's go back. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bet-Avon, east of Bethel, and he said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai, kind of an I spy type of a thing. And they returned to Joshua and they said to him, do not let the people go up Ah, about two or 3,000 men need go up to I. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. In other words, translation, verse three, we got this. Verse four. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down, by the way, Shebarim means the place of collapse, and struck them down on the descent so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, alas, Oh, Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their neck before their enemies? 
I know your translation says back. The word is neck. I find that interesting. It's graphic. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Rise up. Father, Father, we need some men to rise up. And I pray that that motivation will be felt and heard and will resonate in our fellowship. We need some men to rise up. And I call on your name, Lord Jesus, to move among us and to challenge us and convict us of these truths that we're about to study together. And I pray that you will call us man and woman before you, to rise up in these last days, to stand firm on the word of truth, to take you at your word, believe you for your word, and be uncompromising with your word while we extend your grace and mercy and love to a lost world. Oh, Jesus, help us rise up. In Jesus' name, amen. So, after six chapters and a triumphant beginning. As I said Wednesday night, Israel is 5-0. and oh, They have won every battle since departing from Egypt. Joshua chapter 7 takes a troubling turn for Israel in the promised land. Troubling because the man, Achan, his name, his name means troubler, and he stole from God, and it brought problems on all of Israel, but it wasn't just him in fact, I suggested Wednesday night that he had accomplices. I'm not sure how else he could have pulled this off, burying treasure under his tent, getting the treasure from Jericho back into their camp at Gilgal and digging under his tent and burying it there without his family knowing, without anyone else in Israel knowing. And it's interesting that the tragedy cost 36 lives of the Israelite army. Why 36 and why those particular lives? And I wonder if they were not accomplices or at least aware of and hiding the sin of Akan even as he was hiding it under his tent. We know the story ends as Akan and his entire family are stoned to death and then burned and buried under a heap of stones in the valley of Akor, and Akor means trouble as well, the valley of trouble. So I think there's much more going on than what we see on on the page, more behind the scenes here. But even for that, Israel brought trouble on themselves. With or without the sin of Achan, they presumptuously launched their second military campaign in the land against the city of Ai without consulting the Lord. No one thought to pray, no one thought to ask, no one sought the Lord and said, how now are we to fight? The battle plan for Jericho was so unconventional, so strange, right? That you watch them marching around the city six times, blowing shofars in utter silence otherwise. And then on the seventh day, seven times around the city, blow the shofars, shout, and the walls fall down. I mean, who has ever devised such a plan? You would think after something so unique that they would immediately turn around and say, okay, Lord, how are we supposed to fight I? What are we supposed to do this time? Why didn't they? Well, it was easy. It was a no-brainer. It was no big deal. We got this, Lord. We don't need you, Lord. If you want to live the victorious Christian life, 
You gotta follow Jesus into every battle, big or small. It doesn't matter if you feel like you've got it, if you think you have the strength to stand, let him who stands take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. And it doesn't matter even if you come under attack, if the attack's not a big deal or if it's a huge deal, you turn to him, you take it to Jesus. He is the captain of the Lord's host. He is the commander. And so what happens at the beginning of Joshua 7 is it begins with what I call a tragic failure of leadership. A failure of leadership. Now, Joshua recognizes it straight away. I mean, immediately we see this very humble leader of Israel down on his knees in ashes, praying before the Lord, repentant. In fact, he's there having torn his clothes along with the elders of Israel in a faith-struggling prayer before the ark of the Lord. Why is he before the ark? Because God said, Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. This is Joshua. This is Joshua's pattern. Exodus 33, 11 tells us when Moses used to return to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Joshua remained as close to God as he possibly could, and so we have a failure of leadership. It is so easy to happen among human beings. It's, it's kind of how sometimes we're wired. It's that sin nature in us, and yet he immediately turns around and realizes I've got to go to the Lord, I've got to take this back to my father. So he had a pattern of knowing where he needed to be, even in this failure. And by the way, his wrestling prayer ends in the right place. When he says in verse nine, what will you do for your great name? It's about your name, Lord. Ultimately, it is not about me, my reputation, this fellowship, uh, these people. It's not about us. What will you do for your great name? I think implied here is how can we be aligned with what you want to accomplish? The primary role of any leader in triumph or in trouble, and I'm talking about leader in a family, leader at home, leader in the community, leader at work, leader in the church. The primary role of any leader in triumph or trouble is to put the name of the Lord first. But we covered this all on Wednesday night. You know, we, we talked about this, and, and, and if you didn't hear it, it's online, and we don't need to do it again. Why the review? Because the issue, this, this topic that came so strong to me on Thursday that we need to discuss is leadership, biblical leadership. This is an issue of supreme significance in the victorious Christian life. It's also an issue, I believe, it's part of the reason why the church seems less victorious in America today, and that is a failure of leadership and a failure of following. Both are an issue in the church. So, so we're gonna think about this a little bit this morning. We're gonna jump off of the page at Joshua 7. We'll come back to it at the very end. But note that it's Joshua and the elders of Israel who are falling down together before the Lord. Joshua and the elders. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. That is great comfort to me. Because I'm reminded, I was reminded 18 years ago, I'm reminded today it's, it's his to build. It's his church. It is not mine. It's not my focus. It's not my vision. It's his. 
And he said, I will build my church. And that's where it starts. Understanding that the church belongs to Jesus. It does not belong to you. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to the people. The church is not of the people, by the people, or for the people. It is of Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. Period. And we have to start there. That's the foundation. If you want to belong to Jesus, you do things his way. Or don't belong to him. And an awful lot of people want to belong to Jesus or say they belong to Jesus, but they really don't want to do it his way. Now, churched or not, you may be aware of various styles of leadership, different uh, structures in different churches. And depending on what church you attend or visit or look at, there are a lot of differences. There are pros and cons with every single one. And there are some primary styles that, that stand out, at least to me. The goal should always be to be biblical, right? We want our church to be biblical. We want our leadership style, our structure to be a biblical structure. Even as we recognize the sin nature and the pitfalls that are absolutely inherent in any model of human leadership, all right, can, can we agree on that, that any model of human leadership is gonna have its problems because it's human? So it doesn't matter what leadership style a particular congregation or fellowship chooses or uses, there are still potential pitfalls that have to be addressed and have to be acknowledged and ought to be prayed over. But, but here are the big three, and I wanna start with this this morning. Again, you may be aware of these, but, but let's review this, uh, or you can hear it for the first time. Styles of leadership in churches today. One of them is congregational. Congregational leadership, you could call it democratic leadership, and that's where the entire church votes on major issues, votes on directional changes, votes on staffing. I've, I've actually uh, visited a church uh, back when my daughter and son-in-law were living in Wisconsin, the church that they attended was congregational in its leadership style. They had elders, they had pastors, but it was the congregation who voted in or voted out any changes, any uh, structural changes, any staffing changes, any changes to bylaws, it was, it was a vote. And they were actually doing one when we were there that weekend where you had to get your ballot and read what the elders had written about what they wanted to do and actually vote for it. And so some churches function with congregational democratic leadership. The, now that might, to some of you, sound great. The problem is the majority rules and the majority isn't always right. Sometimes the majority is right, sometimes, you know, but, but many times the majority is not, besides the fact we don't see this in Scripture. Now, a church can choose to do this, but we don't see a majority rules voting pattern in the Bible for churches. So then the second leadership style we see that's out there in churches is elder-driven or board-managed, that the church has a board of elders, a board of leaders that makes all the major decisions. Now, they are either voted in by the congregation or they are invited by the current leadership, but the church is managed and led, decisions are made by that elder board. There's a problem with this one. This is one, and I grew up in, in that structure of church. It was elder, elder-led, elder-driven, board-managed, and the problem is division. It's one of the easiest places to divide a church because all you gotta do is get these two guys and those three guys on different pages. 
All you gotta do is sidle up to your team, your group, and get them to go a certain way, and you have division. And if you can bring division among elders, you divide a church. And I've seen this over and over, multiple times, just in, in my ministry life and in growing up going to church. So congregational voting, democratic, you have elder or, or board-led, and then you have the third style, senior pastor-led. Now, right now, before I even say anything, you know there can be some serious problems there. Senior pastor-led, that is where you have a church where there is a man called by the Lord who is the primary teacher and leader, and the problem with senior pastor-led churches is burnt-out pastors who, who think that they have to do everything because they're the senior pastor. You have personality-driven churches, so when a certain personality leaves, tons of people leave too, and then you have the potential for one person to fall either into immorality or into heresy, and if that happens and it's a senior pastor-led church, you upend the entire church fellowship, and I've seen that happen. You have too, haven't you? And we watched major name pastors fall and the church explodes. I think about Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll, had a huge personality, and it was a, a movement in Seattle for a long time there, and when things went south with him and he resigned, it all divided apart. There is no Mars Hill today. Now, there, by the way, are many, many followers of Jesus who came out of that, who are still followers of Jesus today. There are many churches that exist now because Mars Hill was there. The amazing thing is, in spite of the sin nature and in spite of the way that we tend to divide and break up and explode and, and mess up all these different leadership styles, the Lord still saves people. The Lord still builds his church. Now, I would like to be part of that on the positive side, but I know that with or without me, Jesus Christ will build his church, and that is very good news. So what's the biblical pattern? I mean, if you're just gonna try and be as biblical as you can, what's the pattern? And of course, the pattern that we use at the bridge, that's the right one. <laughs> okay, I, and I am kidding. It's the one we've chosen because we do believe it is biblical and we're trying to be as biblical as possible. You can point out to me, and when I'm done today, I'm sure somebody will, you can point out to me, well, Rick, what about this? Or I see where you're a little off there. And, and you know, you may be right. Honestly, you may be right. But we're doing our best to stick to what the scriptures show us. So what do the scriptures show us? Let's think about that for a minute. Three things to note. Number one, God calls a man. God calls a man. Now, we're gonna walk this through scripture. Ladies, you're gonna hear a lot about men this morning, and as you do, please don't freak out on me. I know the culture we're in. In fact, what's really weird is because of the culture we're in, I feel like I'm more of a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal than I've ever felt in my life, and yet, this is the truth of God's word. So, God calls a man, Adam, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, now Joshua. The pattern so far through Torah through the Hebrew scriptures, God calls and raises up a man. Well, yeah, but that's the old patriarchal system. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He lays in a pattern that we can understand. So just to the book of Joshua, we already have all these men who have been called. Well, yeah, but, but they had wives. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. That's part of the deal when God calls a man. 
We're gonna see this continuing through the Bible, Lord willing, with prophets. We'll see it with judges. We will see it with kings. And note this, in each and every case, the called leader was, is, and should be married. This is not just my opinion. This is the example that we see. God calls a married man. He calls a man along whom stands a woman a godly man with a godly wife. And that's so important. You'll see why even more in a bit. You might say, well, but what about Joshua? Because if you read through the book of Joshua, you don't see Joshua's wife. You don't see Joshua's family, and I'd say, slow up there. It's pretty safe to assume Joshua was married. Well, why do you say that? Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Joshua is the leader of his house. The implication is Joshua led his family first, and I believe the implication is wife and children. Now, again, that's one of those points you could argue, and I can't prove it one way or the other. We'll, we'll ask Joshua and Mrs. Joshua when we get there. But God calls a man who's married. Okay, that's number one. Secondly, God confers his spirit on the called man. God confers his spirit. Abraham had a great picture in Eliezer, his servant. Eliezer, whose name means God helps. And then you had Moses, who had his Aaron. Joshua has his Eliezer. That is Eliezer also. Same as Eliezer, slightly different spelling, same name also means God helps. You have this picture of the helper of God, which is a picture and type of the Holy Spirit. Go back and listen as we studied in uh, Genesis 22, 23, 24. Go back and listen to that teaching because it's fascinating that Abraham is gonna send his servant who is a man named Eliezer. We know that, Eliezer. He's gonna send his servant to go get a bride for his son. The father sends the servant to get the bride for the son. So you have this really cool picture that God begins to paint early on of, of a godly man who he is called, who is married, on whom he puts his Holy Spirit. We see that with the first king of Israel. God put his spirit on Saul. Even with his spirit, Saul didn't do too well. So God said, I'm removing my spirit from Saul. I'm gonna put my spirit on David. So now you have David, godly man married with the Holy Spirit upon him. The Holy Spirit, this is so vital. Isaiah 11, verse two, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and you know that because I quote it a lot, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, speaking of Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord is described as the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and, the, and of the fear of the Lord. And any good leader needs those qualities, needs these traits of the Spirit. So you have a, a man who is married that is called. You have now God conferring his Spirit on this man. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. God helps, Eliezer, the name means the spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So leaders must be spirit-filled men on whom the Holy Spirit rests and through whom the Holy Spirit works. Otherwise, they ought not be leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. 
God calls a man, God confers his spirit, and then number three, God confirms wise counsel. And we're, again, looking at, thinking about the biblical pattern. Proverbs 15, 21, Solomon was wise enough to recognize folly is joy to him who lacks sense. (laughs) Don't do this stupid thing. But a man of understanding walks straight. And he follows that with this. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. And we find this pattern. Moses had a council of elders. And Joshua here, in Joshua chapter seven, has his elders, it's Joshua and the elders, together falling down before the Lord. The called man on whom is conferred the Holy Spirit is now confirmed with wise counsel as together they seek the Lord. And there's good balance there. The judges, the kings, they held counsel, and even after the era of the kings, the people of Israel established what's called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Sanhedrin, it's a Greek word. Interesting, it's a Greek word. That tells you something of when it was established. It was really when Greek became the primary language, probably about 60 or 70 B.C., The Sanhedrin really came into its being, although there was always the council of elders before that. Sanhedrin in the Greek means sitting together or or taking counsel. The Sanhedrin in Israel was 71 men who stood together in support of the high priest. So you had the man. You still had the called man. Even after the kings when Israel was ruled by governors after their return from Babylon, you still have the man, the high priest, surrounded by the council of 71, the Sanhedrin. Well, that's all Israel, Rick. What about the church? Once the church got rolling, the pattern continued. A called, spirit-conferred man surrounded by a confirmed council of men. Yes, ladies, it's still men. Stay with me. Who was the first senior pastor of the Jerusalem church? Who do you think that was? Some might say, well, wouldn't it be like Peter? I suggest to you it was James. Jacob is the Hebrew name, says James in our Bibles. We've been over this. I suggest to you it was James, not the apostle James, who was the first apostle to be martyred in Acts chapter 12, but James, the brother of Jesus, because he rises to the top and he is the apparent senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 17. When they go to the elders, they go to James and the elders. In Acts chapter 15, at the council of Jerusalem, James is the one speaking with authority among the elders. Acts chapter 21, verse 18. Again, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he goes to see James and the elders. There's there's something interesting about the called man who stands out from the group of elders who are with him. But he was surrounded, again, by this council of elders. Now, someone might say, what about Peter or John or the apostles? Listen, the apostles were not long for Jerusalem. The apostles were not the church leaders of Jerusalem. Oh, at the very beginning, yeah, but even at the beginning, they called for for ministers to minister to the need because they needed to be about the word of God, ministry of the word and prayer. Acts chapter six, verse four. But they were not long. In fact, after the great persecution of Acts chapter eight, we see the apostles splitting town. Why? 
Because they were apostles. They needed to be out apostling, which means what? They were sent ones, which is what apostolos means, men who are sent. And so they went out and they spread the gospel and you'd be hard pressed to find the apostles in Jerusalem except on a visit after about Acts chapter eight. James was there with the elders of the Jerusalem church. The apostles were going in all directions, spreading the gospel. Along comes Paul. Paul was not a senior pastor. Paul was an apostle. Paul was a missionary. Paul was out planting churches. But you know what Paul did? Paul grabbed a young man named Timothy and set him up at Ephesus. You're the senior pastor of Ephesus. You need to surround yourself with a council of elders. We see him setting up Titus at Crete. Titus chapter one, verse five, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. These were, by the way, not voted in, but they were prayerfully appointed. So you still don't see congregational democratic voting for leadership. What you see is a called man conferred with the spirit with a confirmed group, a council of elders around him. That seems at least to me to be the biblical pattern as we continue to march through this. You even get a glimpse of this, of this senior pastor picture uh, of this leader of a church, of an individual man in the book of Revelation. I'm not talking about the beast, so back off. I'm talking about Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter one and two, chapters one and two, where it says over and over and over, chapter two, verse one. So what did I say there? Revelation two and three are the chapters. Revelation chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Verse eight of chapter two, to the angel of Smyrna. Verse 12 of chapter two, to the angel of Pergamos. Verse 18, to the angel at Thyatira. Chapter three, verse one, to the angel at Sardis. Verse seven, to the angel at Philadelphia. And verse 14, to the angel of Laodicea. Every church had its angel. Who are these angels? Every church had one? Think about this. If the letters were to the angels in heaven, to heavenly angels connected to these churches, Jesus could have just told them. But he tells John to write and to send the letter to the angel of the church at Ephesus. I think these are earth angels. Earth angel. And you might go, so you're saying the senior pastors are called angels, Rick, you're no angel. First of all, thanks. Secondly, angel means messenger. How many times have you heard Les say we're messenger boys? That's all I am. I'm a messenger boy. I I'm passing along the message of the gospel, the message of the word of God. That that's my role. So in a way, I'm kind of an angel. I keep trying to tell my wife she's not buying. <laughs> messenger, delivery boy. That's the meaning of the word. And in fact, that word is used that way in other places in the New Testament, where it's not just speaking of heavenly angels, but it's speaking of a messenger sent to bring the word. So again, with all of this, people can argue different approaches for leadership for churches, and there are pros and cons because of our sin nature and our tendency toward power and, and pride and plain old sin. But what about the bridge? The bridge, as a church, was founded as a senior pastor-led church fellowship with a council of shepherds recognizing and understanding, and it's so important, and, and I, I gotta tell you honestly, 
We were talking about up here this morning how um, worship leading can kind of get in your head, can mess with your head a little bit. And you really have to set your head aside and just ask the Lord, what do you want? And it's the same thing with Bible teaching and, and pastoring. It can mess with your head. So you have to constantly just step back and go, Lord, this is yours. Lord, what do you wanna do? Lord, what do you want taught? Sometimes there are things that I have to teach that I don't wanna teach. And while I love teaching church leadership, it's weird teaching about a senior pastor-led church when you're the senior pastor because it just sounds like you're trying to confirm yourself. I'm not, I'm not. We're 18 years in, it ain't changing now, folks. The reality is, and what keeps me grounded is recognizing we are all just sheep who belong to the chief shepherd. We are given positions and roles that we can either accept or reject. We can either stand as God has called us to stand in whatever position that is, or we can say no to that. But the bottom line is we have a chief shepherd and his name is Jesus. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Peter chapter five for a moment. 1 Peter chapter five. Our very first Bible study, while you're turning there, started with a senior pastor and two shepherds. I mean, before we had our first house Bible study, it was important to me, the Lord really led us in that direction. We need to be, I, I didn't wanna be a senior pastor church. A senior pastor with shepherds for accountability, for encouragement, for wisdom beyond myself, and <laughs> I need that. And it was Jeff D'Angelo and, and Mike Freeman were the first two shepherds. So in that first Bible study, we had a senior pastor and two elders. We weren't even calling them shepherds at that point. We were just saying elders. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But again, I'm not trying to defend our leadership style at the bridge. It's just important that we understand. And I'm looking at the biblical picture. And this is why we landed 18 years ago where we landed as a senior pastor-led church with a supportive council of elders, shepherds, bishops, if you will. Hold that thought. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God under you, or among you, not under you, among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves, all of you clothe yourselves, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Note the three words that Peter uses interchangeably in verses one and two. He uses elders, which is the word presbyteros, where Presbyterian comes from. Elder board church. Now, the Presbyterian church takes the elder board approach to church governance, and that's why. Presbyteros, elders. And then he says, in the verb form, shepherd the flock. He's telling elders to be shepherds. The word is poimano. It's where we get the word pastor. Pastor or shepherd, same word. So elders who shepherd, and then the next word he uses in the verb form there in verse two is 
exercising oversight. That's one word, exercising oversight, and it's in the verb form, it's episkopeo, from the noun episkopos, which is bishop. So in the same two verses, interchangeably, Peter uses elders, pastors, bishop, same people. Same role of leadership. Three aspects of the one role of of a biblical leader in the church. Peter uses the three words synonymously, elders, pastors, bishops. So does Paul. Speaking to the elders, the presbyteros of Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos. To shepherd, poimanian, or where we get the word poimano, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, elders, shepherd, and oversee. Elders, bishops, pastors, it's all the singular form, of, it's all the synonymous word for leadership in the Bible, interchangeable. One council of leaders involving management, elders, oversight, bishops, and shepherding, pastors. So that's, that's actually very simple to see in the language of both Peter and Paul in the New Testament. So that begs the question, why do we call them shepherds at the bridge? Why not bishops? The hats were too expensive. (laughs) Why not elders? Because I don't want anyone serving to be bored. See an elder bored? Okay, that wasn't as good. Seriously, um, we we chose to go with shepherds. We could have called our our council of, of leaders, we could have called bishops, biblically, We could have called them elders, and and as I said, we did it first. We chose to go with shepherds. Why did we go with shepherds? Honestly, because it's the most unassuming, feeding, tending, and nurturing name. It's it's the lead, you know, typically you wouldn't go to work and go, hey, I was just elected a shepherd of my church. (laughs) What? That's kind of weird. It's unassuming. We, We looked at that, and of the three names, we said, you know, okay, that one's the most humble, That one is the most servant-focused. That one has, I think, the right mentality. And so we call our leadership shepherds. That's why we could have called them again, bishops or elders. We went with shepherds. Jesus said to Peter in John 21, 15, 16, and 17, he said, tend my lambs. He said, shepherd my sheep. He said, feed my sheep. Tend, feed, pastor, shepherd. And so I think that's the right mentality. So you ask the question, what do shepherds do? They tend, they feed, they pastor saved sheep, and they seek to find lost lambs. And I think that's the right mentality for leadership. Now, again, within that council of elders, of shepherds, you you need to have oversight of the church. There is administrative responsibility. There's shepherding responsibility. There's management responsibility about decisions that are made going forward about different things. So that's part of it too. But, But our desire was that the heart be a shepherd's heart. Keep that in mind. In addition, at the bridge, we do have deacons. You may not have known this. Where's the list? When do the deacon meetings happen? They don't, and there is no list. Deacon, diakonos, is the word minister or servant in the Bible. And we have 
ministers, servants, stewards in various ministries that are both paid and volunteer doing all kinds of things. And we're not, the reason why we don't have a board of deacons, again, is because we're not highlighting junior elders. We just have leaders and servants. Leaders and servants, keeping it as simple as possible because in the church, leadership matters. Leadership matters. You see Joshua and the elders on their knees before the Lord because leadership matters. We see a failure in Israel because leadership matters. And even in this independent culture, leadership matters. Bible students remember that of the seven churches in the Revelation, the sixth, or the, the seventh, no, I guess the final church that's, that's given a letter is Laodicea. Read that letter. It's not the church that we wanna be. No one would say, yeah, yeah, we're the Laodicean church. There's a reason why you don't see a denominational uh, group called the Laodiceans in America today. That's not the church you wanna be. It's the lukewarm church, and Laodicea means the people's rights. And we are not to be about the people's rights. As Americans, we assume we have the inalienable, inalienable right to everything these days, from medical insurance to a good cheeseburger. It's my right. And that's ridiculous. Philippians chapter three, verse seven, Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Again, that's one of those verses that I read it and, and as I share it with our fellowship can sound kind of self-serving from a senior pastoral perspective. But listen to me, obedience to leadership is not for the sake of the leaders, it is for the sake of the follower. Obedience is for you as much as it is for me that we learn to obey. It is vital to victorious Christian living that we learn to be a people who are obedient and not rebellious like the children of Israel so often were. Like we continue to see in the church today, leadership matters. And so God, in his wisdom, though we understand the sin nature, we understand the pitfalls of humanity, we get all that, we know it, God, in his wisdom, established the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and in that, he calls a man. He surrounds the man with godly leadership, and he calls on the fellowship to walk with their leaders. Now, I would add to that what Paul says is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And the moment any leader steps out of line from the imitation of Jesus is the moment you don't just quit following, you go to the leader and say, bro, this is what it says. And it doesn't seem to be what you're doing. Oh, Rick, it almost sounds like you're calling the entire fellowship to hold the leadership accountable. Yes, I am. And that's how it works. And I often view this as an upside down triangle which really makes me laugh because one of my best friends growing up, David Greer, came home crying one day to his dad because the, the bullies at school called him upside down triangle head. 
because that's kind of like the shape of his head was kind of like, an, they called him upside down triangle. I, I think of an upside down triangle when I think of leadership. What do you mean? I, I mean fellowship first, leaders second, senior pastor third. That should be the right mentality and Jesus overall. Jesus is the one who we serve. Leadership matters. So what we've seen here is the Bible gives just two roles, two positions in the church, leaders and servants. But the best leaders serve the servants. The best godly shepherding is the lowest rung. It is not the highest. It is the lowest rung. It is putting saints and servants and other shepherds ahead of the needs of self. Whatever my needs might be, And that is the greatest challenge. By the way, support your leaders because the greatest challenge to anyone leading in a church is to deal with pride and to recognize that I gotta put others for it. This is what I want. This is what is needed. And there are many times where what I want is not alongside, it's not congruent with what is needed for the fellowship. That's tough. Because I want to do what I want to do. And the rebellion and the sin rises up. But the godly leader says, no, what does the church need? What does the fellowship need? What needs to happen here, regardless of what it does for you personally? And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And I love the word servant there. It's not what you'd think. Servant there is not diakonos, deacon, minister. Servant there is huperetos, which means under rower. Guy down in the bottom of the boat rowing. That's, Paul says, regard us that way. If you want to think about us in any way, you look at us as the lowest of the lowest of the lowest servants. What did Jesus tell the 12? Man, those guys, if you turn your Bibles over to Luke 22, Luke chapter 22. Those guys were always jockeying for position. Always fighting for who was the greatest, who was in first place, who's gonna sit at his right and sit at his left at the kingdom. It was a constant issue for this council of trainees around Jesus. And it continues to be an issue in the church of 2022. Luke 22, verse 24 there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. It is not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Jesus said, who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? but I am among you as the one who serves. Incredibly challenging that Jesus says, I'm here to serve you. You do likewise. That's the pattern of leadership. That's the bottom line as far as Jesus is concerned. Jump over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. You know what's happening in John chapter 13. We just studied it. As Jesus gets up from the table, pours water into a basin, begins to wash the disciples' feet, and in John chapter 13, verse 12, after he's all finished with this, says when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, 
You're right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed, Jesus says, if you do them. What is he saying? Be like me. Be Christ-like. Do unto others as I have done unto you. Promised land victory depended on good leadership from Joshua and the elders surrounding him. In the same way, the victorious Christian life depends on healthy, godly church leadership. And the challenge is yet and always before us. Now, we are blessed at the bridge with an amazing staff, some, some great servants and, and, and ministers of the gospel, uh, just amazing people, be best I've ever worked with, and I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying that. There's a great cohesion. There is a deep, deep love for this fellowship among our people on staff, and so I am so blessed to work with them. We have a remarkably devoted and humble group of shepherds. We have been blessed over 18 years with humble, devoted shepherds, one after another after another, and I have been able to serve with all of these guys, and to a man, there is not one that I regret serving with. All have been gifts of God for the right season, in the right place, at the right time. But we are at a critical point as a church fellowship. And I've been watching this for a while, and I've had my own stuff focus. You know, I, I talked to Cheryl about this the last three years. Chris is home, by the way, one year today. One year today, which is just wonderful. But that, that was three years of our lives where my focus was there. And I, and I knew that, and I, I knew even on uh, focusing on, uh, specifically on shepherds at the bridge, that my focus was really over here. And, and so some things in my own mind and heart were on hold, but we're at a point right now, my friends, we need men to rise up. We need men to rise up and join our council of shepherds for our fellowship. No, we do not have women among our shepherds but every one of our shepherds must be a married man because what our wives bring to the table in our shepherding makes all the difference in the world. Trust me, it does. You, you don't want us guys thinking without, without our wives. And I'm gonna say this a little bit. Why, why only men? Why only men? And what are we looking for if we're talking about men rising up? We are looking for, and I am praying about, and I'm asking you to join me in prayer for Godly shepherds to, to join our council, to be part of that. I'll explain more about what I'm saying in just a second. But the question, why only men and what exactly are we looking for? The second question is actually really easy to answer. What are we looking for? It's easy to answer and it's impossible. <laughs> because all we're looking for is Christ-like character. Simple, right? Not simple. It's the greatest challenge of every single one of our lives to live Christ-like. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your job, your role, your position is in the church or outside of it, to live Christ-like is the great challenge of our lives. And that's all we're looking for in leaders is Christ-like people. Simple, right? <laughs> every pastor, every shepherd, and every servant who is truly Christ-like immediately 
feels wholly inadequate, which is a Christ-like attitude, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Which again, to be Christ-like, you've gotta have someone who has the Spirit, who is walking with the Spirit. So that's the right heart I am not adequate in and of myself. However, if I have any adequacy for the calling, it's because my adequacy comes from God. Anyone who sees leading as their right rather than their privilege should not be leading. And so one of the biggest challenges that we have in seeking out shepherds is that the the humble man who you want doesn't think that he's adequate for the job. So he's never gonna put his name up. And the one who will put his name up sometimes isn't the one you want because he thinks he should be a shepherd or a leader. That's difficult. So what do we do with this? And there's still that, that why a man thing hanging out there. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter three. This is the last place I wanna take you. 1 Timothy chapter three. Thankfully, in all of this and seeking to understand God's will for godly leadership in the church, Paul spells out the council of shepherds. He describes for us what I call the shepherd's heart. And you can see this clearly. 1 Timothy chapter three, and if you're not there, go there and follow through with me just for a few moments here. Verse one, it is a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, stop right there and understand something. It is okay to aspire to shepherding. It is okay, it's not arrogance and pride to think, I wonder if the Lord wants me to to lead and to pray about that and to put your own name before the Lord and to see if perhaps he's calling you. Sometimes that's how you know. How did I know to be the senior pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship? God called me. And it was not a move of arrogance, trust me, because it was the last thing on earth that I wanted to do, no offense. God will call, and you may be that man among us going, well, I've thought about this, but I just never saw an avenue to, you know, to offer my service as a shepherd. Well, it's a good thing you aspire to do. It's a fine work, Paul says. And he goes on to say, an overseer, an overseer, verse two, that word, by the way, is bishop. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. Oh, okay. Well, disqualified. And it's funny, because when we've gone over this list with our current shepherds at different times over the year, years, every time we hit verse two, every man in the room goes, okay, well, I'm just, thanks for, I'm out. Above reproach, the phrase above reproach is an epileptos. Doesn't mean an epileptic. It means one who doesn't bring blame or accusation upon himself. So to be above reproach does not mean that you're perfect. It means that you live your life trying not to become blameworthy, pursuing holiness, pursuing purity, making decisions in everyday life, and as you make your decisions, you stop and go, wait a minute, if I do this, this, I, I may be blameworthy. 
I may be easily accused, even if I'm not doing the wrong thing, if I do something that could look that way, well then I'm gonna step back from it. That is living above reproach, pursuing holiness. You're not flawless, but you flee worldliness. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And he's not talking about being disqualified from his salvation, he's talking about being disqualified from his preaching. This is, this is a burden. Let me just put it that way. This is a burden. I it's not a heavy weight. It's not a horrible thing, but it's a burden on me. I understand that how I am in the marketplace, in the world, in my behavior, in and outside of the church will determine whether or not I can keep teaching. Because if I'm out there doing stupid things and I'm bringing reproach on myself, who's gonna wanna hear the word coming out of this mouth? So there's a burden there to say, I have to think twice about something that maybe someone else doesn't have to think about. Maybe you can go see that movie and no big deal, you come walking out of it and say hi to your Christian friends and no one bats an eye, but I come walking out of that movie, oh, oh what were you watching? I have to think about these things. And, and, and a, sh a shepherd should, verse two, continuing, must be above reproach, and then it says, and here it is clearly, the husband of one wife. Why must a shepherd be a man? the husband of one wife. He is a one-woman man. Now, let me be really clear about this one because this, this does answer that question, uh, why a shepherd must be a man. A woman, by the biblical standard, cannot be a husband of one wife, no matter what the culture says. And, and it, it saddens me that I even have to qualify this. A woman cannot be a husband any more than a man can be a wife, and I know our culture is completely upside down on that one. I'm just standing in what scripture still says. I, I was texting Yeva about some work-related thing this last week, and I actually te texted her, it is getting tougher and tougher just to stand on basic morality. Just by accepting basic truth, you are in opposition to society and culture. These, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me. The Bible is very clear. A husband must be a man by the biblical definition of a man, not by someone's idea of what they may think their identity is. What the Bible calls a man can be a husband. What the Bible calls a woman can be a wife. So that there's no misunderstanding here because you see how confusing all of this is and when you start to try and apply culture to scripture, it flips everything upside down. If I apply culture to scripture, well then a woman can be a husband, therefore a shepherd. And there are churches who accept that to their own, I fear, demise. A one-woman man, husband of one wife, marriage, now marriage is vital. This is why I say if you're going to be a pastor, shepherd, a bishop, elder, you need to be married. I think it's vitally important. At the risk of sounding legalistic, I think it's vitally important because marriage, it provides a leader provides a man with stability. It provides him with sensitivity beyond himself. Oh, trust me on that one. It provides him with wisdom, with a way of seeing the world. When God created man, he created them, male and female. The picture of the ideal man, if you will, the Adam in the Bible is both masculine and feminine together 
And that's why in biblical leadership, though the leader is a man, he must be married. He must have a wife involved as well. Marriage provides what a man really needs beyond himself. Sisters, can I get an amen on that? The church has traditionally viewed this whole idea of husband of one wife to mean not divorced. But the, the reality is polygamy was very much at issue as well. So what, what's being talked about here, the emphasis, I think, is, is on the word one, husband of one wife, the one woman man. Why is this important? Because it displays a proven faithfulness. You want someone leading who has already shown himself to be faithful to his wife. Luke 12, 42 says, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? You need someone who has proven to be faithful. Revelation 2, 10, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So you have an overseer who must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, and prudent, I'm putting those two together because those traits go very well together. Temperate and prudent. Temperate is sober. It's self-controlled. The ninth fruit of the spirit, by the way. Self-controlled, temperate. Prudent means clear-headed with unaffected judgment. So the wise shepherd, the, the healthy functional shepherd should be temperate and prudent and I hear Jesus saying, Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you need to be sober. You need to be clear-minded with unaffected judgment. And both temperance and prudence, by the way, relate to a particular social custom that I'll come back to in just a minute. Respectable is the next word. Respectable, which simply means modest. Modest, a shepherd should be modest. Not wild, not out of control, not nuts out in the marketplace, not crazy, well-behaved. That's why I will never wear shorts, modest. The next word, that, well, that's not the only reason, but let's not go there. <laughs> hospitable is the next word, hospitable. So a shepherd needs to have an, an attitude of hospitality that is welcoming and generous to guests. In the home, in the church, someone who's opening the door and saying, come on in. Hebrews 13, two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Think any have ever shown up at the bridge? Have any ever shown up at your house? Any knocked at your door? Any, anyone here been visited by angels unaware? The Bible says it happens. I think that's really cool. I think it's gonna be really fun to be with the Lord in heaven and to be meeting some of these angels and going, wait a minute, you borrowed a cup of sugar from me. <laughs> angels unaware, and it's having that attitude. Anyone and everyone is welcome. That generosity toward guests. The next phrase there is able to teach. At the end of verse two, able to teach. It's in the adjective, adjective form of the word. That's important because able to teach literally means teachable, teachable. It doesn't mean that every elder should be a teaching pastor. It means they should be a teachable pastor, a teachable shepherd. 
This is becoming increasingly vital in these last days because those who teach need to still be able to be taught. So teachable is an important trait here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all and able to teach. Again, teachable and then patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So there needs to be an air of, uh, uh, I can still learn, I'm still being taught, I'm still being sanctified here. And by the way, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to rightly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, you just need to be in it. So a shepherd is someone who loves the word and is in the word and is ongoing taught by the word. The next one, verse three, is not addicted to wine or pugnacious. And I'm gonna put those two together. And this is the social custom I was referring to relating to temperance and prudence and here, not addicted to wine. Doesn't say doesn't drink wine. We've had that debate for years about should shepherds drink at all or should they just not be addicted to wine? Well, the Bible doesn't ever say you can't drink at all. It just advises against it. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious. What's that mean? Pugnacious sounds like a little dog. <laughs> pugnacious means ready for a fight, a brawler. And the reason why it follows right after not addicted to wine is because if you're addicted to wine, alcohol enhances brawling. And alcohol enhances pugnacity. And it's interesting that four of the traits on this list all have to do with sobriety. Why is that? Proverbs 31 verse four says, it is not for, for kings we could say leaders. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And then he says this, I find this fascinating in the Bible. Proverbs 31 verse six, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. So if you're lost and bitter, drink up. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. The reality is that the perishing needs saving and the bitter need tending, and neither ought to be shepherding. If your life is bitter, if, if your life is lost, you're not and should not be is shepherding. But a shepherd needs to be temperate and prudent and, and clear-minded and thoughtful and caring for the body first and not for his own needs. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, what kind of spirit are you filled with? Gentle and peaceable are next on the list. Gentle and peaceable. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, Pray that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That is the call, by the way, on a man of God. Peaceful, tranquil. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Why is that important? Because sheep feel unsafe around an anxious shepherd. So a wise shepherd, a good leader, is gonna be a man of, at peace. A man who has the peace of God with him, who deals with an attitude of peace. He goes on and says, free from the love of money. 
Peter already addressed this for 1 Peter 5, verse 2, don't shepherd for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, this was especially problematic back in the first century because you had portable prophets and roving rabbis who lined their pockets by fleecing the sheep. I know, I got that out, though. It's pretty good. One breath. Portable prophets. There were guys who went around Greece and they were looking just to come into a town and I have prophecies and people would gather around and they'd send around the bucket and everybody would put their money in and then they would prophesy. There were rabbis who that was, they made their living and everybody understood, well, you just, you just pay the priest, the prophet, the rabbi, not in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that someone can't be paid because the Bible addresses that in other places and I don't have time to go there. But what it means is you're not doing it to line your pockets. You're not going after people, trying to get them. Pastors should not be the man of the bling. Shepherds should not be those walking around you know, on, the, on the backs of the sheep. And so that one's really important. Uh, interesting, think about David. Why was David called as the shepherd king of Israel? Because he had proven himself with real sheep. He had proven himself not only to be a good shepherd, but to put the most vulnerable lambs first as he fought off a lion or fought off a bear just to protect the flock. And with that kind of heart and that kind of an attitude, you put that type of person in leadership because they will care for people that way. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, God brought David to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance, Psalm 78, 71. And where better to begin than to learn at home and then to come into leadership as David did. Oh, by the way, verse four goes on to say that the, the shepherd, the overseer, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so we're still talking about a man. It's clear throughout this, even if you're not looking at the one verse about the husband, even the word overseer, by the way, in verse one, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, overseers in the masculine form. So this man needs to know how to manage his household, verse five tells us. So a shepherd is a father who cares first for his family. Psalm 103, 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The father picture. Proverbs 3, verse 12, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Colossians 3, 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children. And I don't think that means messing with their heads. I, I, I think, because I do that with my kids. Fathers, <laughs> do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. The exasperation of demands and, and authoritarian leadership and, and hard-headed fathering parenting. Don't exasperate them. Don't break their hearts. As Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. A father who cares first for his family is a good candidate to be a shepherd. Verse six, continuing says, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. There is a process. There is no substitute, right, Les? There is no substitute for mileage. So you're looking for someone. That's where the word elder really does apply. You're looking for someone with some degree of, of maturity, seasoned in their faith, so that they can lead those who are coming into faith and growing up in faith. Verse seven, and he must have a good reputation with those outside. Implication, outside the church. 
so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil, a good reputation with those outside. You can translate that integrity. You're looking for someone of integrity that is. You are who you are in Christ wherever you are. It doesn't matter if you're at church or at work or at the store or among friends. You are the same person and people can recognize and see that good reputation. It's about what you do when you think no one's watching because the truth is the world is always watching. So God says through Paul, I want shepherds of integrity, shepherds of good reputation. Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 4.5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. And interestingly, the Holy Spirit through Paul bookends this list with reproach. Verse two, be above it. And then verse seven, don't fall into it. Be above reproach. Don't fall into reproach. Brothers, are you listening? Because there's something here you need to understand. This is not only aspiring shepherds. This is unapologetic biblical manhood. This is what a man of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, is to look like. Don't apply the list of these qualities to gain position. But gentlemen, fathers, husbands, sons, brothers, apply this list to be a man of God, yourself, myself. Ladies, mothers, wives, daughters, sisters, we need you alongside us, equal before God, because there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, all are one in Christ Jesus, equal before the Lord, but positioned with different roles together as we serve him. It's not about who's better. This is about who's serving as God has called us to serve. And so we need, as I pull this all together, we need men to rise up. Rise up to aspire to more than getting up, going to work, coming home, shrinking into the couch and watching the news and getting upset. We need men to rise up. We need more than weekday or weekend warriors. We need godly shepherds for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. And that's why I was compelled to talk about this. It's not that we don't have wise, godly shepherds. I started out, when we started the church, I thought, you know, it'd be really nice to have a shepherd for every 10 people. And when we first met in the very first living room, there were about 20, 25 people, and we had a senior pastor and two shepherds. Perfect. And the church began to grow, and we began to try to call other people. There was a point where we had about 100 people, and we had Eight shepherds. They're like, okay, well, that's close. We're, we're, but that's a little more than 10, but that's pretty good. You know, Jesus had 12. And so I look at that and I think, well, as our church grows, if we still had the one shepherd per 10 person rule, how many should we have right now? No, that, that's not a, a biblical mandate. It's just, I think, do we have enough shepherds to care for the needs of our fellowship? And as we've come out of the whole quarantine, lockdown, COVID, and, and, and this, the ball's rolling, my friends. We're lacking one or two people this morning, but there's a lot of people out sick, so I'm glad they're home. <laughs> but the ball's rolling forward. And in these last days, we need men to rise up. 
So would you stand with me? Again, Joshua chapter seven, we know what happened. We know about the collapse at Ai. We know how things fell apart. We know that Joshua and, and the shepherds, the elders, they fell down before the Lord. And then we hear the Lord in verse 10 give us what I'm gonna apply to us as a command this morning. The Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? I love that. No time to grovel. No time to moan and whine and complain and feel bad for yourself. Rise up. Rise up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, and they have even taken some of the things under the ban, which, by the way, that language implies that Israel sinned, and they also did this. So there's more sin than just taking the things under the ban. They have sinned, period. And he goes on and says, moreover, they've put some of these things among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their necks before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. And then God says this, and it's two things for us this morning. He says, rise up, and then he says, consecrate yourselves. Rise up, consecrate yourselves. So my request to you this morning is that we turn that around, that we first would consecrate ourselves. As a church fellowship, if you have something to repent of, repent of it. If you have something to get right with the Lord, get it right with the Lord. You have something between you and him, some silence that, that is keeping you from truly following him, consecrate yourselves. And I'm talking to Christians, it is time to stand before the Lord in this culture at this point in the age and be a holy people. And then once we've consecrated ourselves, let us rise up and seek godly shepherds. And I'm asking you to pray with me, and we're gonna do it right now. We're not gonna do a final song or an invitation. We're just gonna pray together. And we're gonna pray that God would raise up in our fellowship shepherd leaders. And by the way, after we pray, whether it's today or this week or whatever, you can email me, you can text me, you can, you can let me know, but please pass along names to me of men that you feel would be good shepherds in this fellowship, godly men, based on everything we've been talking about this morning and based on how the Bible describes a shepherd, you can pass names to me, you can pass names to our current shepherds, you can pass names to our staff, and they will be, listen to me, prayerfully deliberated. Not a guarantee that they'll be asked to be a shepherd. You know, but, but we will look at every name that's given and we'll think about it and pray about it. And that means if you feel humbly called yourself, if you find in your heart an, an aspiration to shepherd in this fellowship, call me, text me, let me know. Because the Lord needs shepherds in this body to join our current guys. It is a fine work you desire to do. So let's pray. Father, we stand before you this morning having taken a little bit of time to discuss leadership and, and church structures and all that, but Lord, we stand before you, rising up as you called Joshua and the elders to do. We stand before you refusing to wallow in what's behind us or perhaps what has been in any of our lives. We rise up asking you to make us holy. We repent, Lord, of anything that has 
gotten between us and you. We turn to you, Lord Jesus, for the sake of your great name. And we ask you, Lord, to raise up Christ-like shepherds among us. We ask you with that, Father, that you would continue to sanctify us as a church fellowship, to strengthen us in these days, to help us, Lord, to be those who stand for the truth. And it's getting harder and harder. I, I need more and more people standing next to me because of just the pressure and the constancy of, of culture going against your very word, Lord. And I pray that you will cause us to rise up, stand together, a consecrated people, led by your desire, a church built, Lord Jesus, by you, our chief shepherd. And we pray that you will lead us forward in this. Lord, bring, bring men who need to serve. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. <laughs> 